This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. One of the defining features of the Trump era was the proliferation of fake news, partisan propaganda and salacious stories masquerading as journalism, which worked to undermine an informed citizenry, which is necessary for a healthy democracy. But as historian and Columbia journalism professor Andy Tucker argues, fake news has actually been a central feature of American life for centuries. On this episode, Tucker joins Commonweal Features Editor Alex Stern to discuss both the history of American journalism and what that history means for reforming the profession in the age of the internet, social media, and AI. Their conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Alex. It's good to see you today. Good to be here, Donald. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your conversation with Andy Tucker? Sure. So obviously, during the 2016 presidential campaign, the phrase fake news exploded on the scene. And since then, it's been at the center of debate to her media bias, election interference, free speech, content moderation, etc. And I think that the apparent newness of the phenomenon can cause us to lose sight of the fact that Misleading stories, sensationalism, and outright lies have been kind of part of the journalistic enterprise from the very beginning. Tucker's book documents this history, starting with the very first paper in pre-revolutionary America. She also documents the attempts in fits and starts to counter the tendency toward fabrication and bias through professional standards and practices in journalism. As we enter yet another election cycle sure to be rife with lies, I think she provides a valuable lens through which to view both our current misinformation problem and the ongoing dynamic between genuine and fake journalism. Thanks, Alex. I think it's going to be a good and it's an important conversation. Let's take a listen. Andy Tucker, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Nice to be here. Maybe you could start by describing your own career. You've been in journalism, you've been in politics, and now you've been in academia for a while. So maybe you could just talk about your kind of career trajectory and how you came to start researching the history of fake news. Yeah, I've had several lives. My first life was as a librarian many years ago, but I became interested in journalism. I was in the high school newspaper. I was always interested in information. I was always interested in how people learn things. And my career was accidental. I was in graduate school studying American history and realized that I was not quite satisfied and wanted to think of something else, and through a series of accidents, found myself working with Bill Moyers at Public Affairs Television, which, if anyone who knows Bill's work, would recognize that journalism and truth and politics and history are all very much part of that world. So I worked with him for about five years. I took a break to work on as a speechwriter on the presidential campaign of Clinton Gore, in 92, moved to Little Rock, and worked after that on a documentary on American history. And again, through a series of sort of accidents that's hard to recap, I ended up in academia, where I'm really happy at Columbia Journalism School. Great. So why don't we jump into the book, which is a kind of comprehensive history of fake news, at least in the American context. As you make clear in the book, 
fake news has been kind of part of journalism since the very beginning. So could you talk a little bit about the nature of American journalism in those early years, including the sort of 18th, 19th centuries? Yeah. American journalism has always been interested in information. It's always There's always been a strong streak of understanding that the citizen needs to know what's going on in the world. The citizen needs to be able to hold the government accountable. So that's always been a big part of it. But journalism, especially in the first 200 or so years, served a lot of different purposes, or I wouldn't even call it journalism, I'd call it newspapers. Newspapers did include the information that people needed about government affairs, about local affairs, but it, they also served all sorts of other purposes, especially, for instance, in the 18th and 19th centuries as people were moving west and settling new little towns and they didn't have access to a lot of information. They didn't have bookstores. They didn't have libraries. The newspaper that they got once a week was what they knew about the world. So it was sometimes filled with information. A lot of it was short stories, was poetry, was travelers' tales, was sermons, was old wives' tales. And people didn't expect that if they picked up the newspaper, everything in it was going to be true. They picked it up looking for a whole variety of different kinds of entrees into the world, and it didn't bother anyone. There was no idea that a reporter was someone who went out and found the facts and came back and wrote them down. There were no real reporters for the first more than 100 years. There was an editor, usually a man, who generally sat in his office and got letters and people walked by and people gave him old newspapers that somebody else had sent them. And he would put them all together in a newspaper and sometimes on, on the a headline on a story would be important if true, <laughs> which meant, well, this is cool and you might want to know about it, but I ain't taking any responsibility for vetting it. And that nobody expected that they would. It, it took about 200 years for evolving ideas about what newspapers were supposed to do meant that people began to expect that newspapers would be filled with truthful things. Right. Could you talk a little bit more maybe about this idea that journalists would go out and have better access to the truth than the ordinary public would when did the idea of a reporter as a kind of professional who had certain skills and was able to discern the truth sort of better than the average citizen? When did that originate? That was a slow evolving process. You began to see it in some of the big city newspapers in the 1830s with the arrival of what we know of as the penny press. That was a shift. Before that, newspapers had a whole lot of partisan stuff in them. They were expected to serve the interests of their party. The editors were members of the party. There was no sense that objectivity was of value. No one even heard of objectivity. Newspapers were there to make partisan arguments. In the 1830s, some big city editors started to think they wanted a more stable financial basis. They didn't want to be dependent on the party remaining in power. They wanted to be able to sell to a large audience. There was a new kind of audience in the big cities, people coming from out of town, people arriving from overseas who wanted to know what, what life was like in the city, not necessarily what politicians were talking about in Washington. So in those newspapers, the New York Sun, the New York Herald, the there was a paper in Boston, there were papers in Baltimore. Those started to send out brisk young men, and again, they were mostly men at this point, to find facts, to go to the little local courthouse and see what's going on, to go stand at the battery in New York at the tip of Manhattan and to look at a tree and think there were 67 pigeons in the tree and come back and put that in the newspaper, because that's really exciting. And people would read that and say, yeah, I saw that too. So it was a different kind of relationship growing with these metro newspapers. 
But again, it was very slow. And in the countryside, there was just, it was the editor sitting in the office waiting for stuff to come in and copying stuff from other newspapers. Originality was a sin. Originality was not valued. You wanted to get the stuff that other newspapers had. It was not until about the late 19th century that many people began to think that journalism needed to be changed radically. Journalism needed to be reformed. It was an era, the late 19th century, where a lot of reform was necessary. There were The progressive era was getting underway to call for cleaning up municipal governments, cleaning up corporations, cleaning up all sorts of abuses in the public sector. And some reporters, some editors, some public citizens began to feel we need to make journalism more trustworthy. We need to make it more informative and more useful. That was balanced against the yellow press, which was also establishing in the 1890s. It was also getting more and more strong. The press by William Randolph Hearst, Joseph Pulitzer, who were serving, again, a large urban constituency, many of them new immigrants from places like Eastern Europe, from Russia, coming to the big cities. And those newspapers catered to people who were newcomers, who didn't know what was going on, who wanted to know how to be American. So the, the responsible newspapers were pushing back against that, that right. sensationalist approach. Right. And that seems to, at least in your presentation, to set the stage for the tension that remains in journalism up to the present day. So obviously, there's this kind of dialectic here. So we have greater professionalization. There's going to be a kind of backlash, if you will. And that that happens in the 20s and later in the form of the kind of tabloid press. So could you talk a little bit about how tabloids came to be, how they were different than the existing newspapers and the kinds of stories they were publishing? Yeah, the problem for the responsible journalists was World War I. They were making efforts in the 19, in 1912, they were making efforts to educate journalists to have standards and all of that. Then World War I comes along and propaganda becomes recognized as a, a feature of the landscape. And this is where I would call what I call fake journalism begins. The use of the forms and conventions and language of professional journalism in order to present information that is not true, that is opinion, that is advocacy, that is pro- propaganda. So. Here's the journalist trying really hard in the early part of the century to reform the profession, and then everything gets washed away by World War I because people understand the power of propaganda, the ugliness of propaganda. The tabloids came along right after World War I, and they were reacting to the loss of trust, the loss of faith. They didn't use the language of, this is for public good, this is for the good of the citizen. They used the language of entertainment. Here, read us. We're going to be fun. We're going to, we won't bore you. We promise we won't bore you. They, many of them said that the New York Daily News, the, the Hearst tabloid, they would come out in their inaugural issues and they would say, let us know if we're boring you. 80%, 90% of this is going to be really fun. So the point was not to be responsible and respectable because nobody believed newspapers would do that anymore. They were stepping into a gap and the stories of the Roaring Twenties in the aftermath of World War I, everybody is going out dancing in the streets and smoking and showing their knees if they're women, that because everybody was so wanted to put the war behind them. And the tabloids fit well into that kind of crazy consumer, devil-may-care culture. But they also changed a lot of ideas about what journalism was and should do. They used 
what was called compositographs. One of them did. The New York Graphic used a photographic technique called the composograph in which they would pull together and use, they'd take a photograph and then paste heads onto the photograph so it looked like other people. They would stage things. They would pose things. They would say, this is a composograph. And people would look at that and they would go, yeah, I get it. I know what that's all about. So it, it was all, it was in a way back to what the 1830s Penny Press was doing. It was inviting people in to say, here's a newspaper that's for you. And you get to choose. You get to decide whether you're going to believe this or not. So, And there's, that's still, there, the, the tabloid, the print tabloid press is vastly enervated these days. But that was the style of tabloids for 100 years is, maybe this is true, maybe this isn't, but it's fun. Yeah. And this is what it's for. It's for it's fun and you get to choose whether to believe it or not. So we're in the nineteen thirties now, a time with unfortunately many resonances to our own, and a number of demagogic and populist politicians, including Hitler, Mussolini, and even in the US populists like Huey Long, are starting to take advantage of the radio and new technology that somewhat like social media today offered access to politicians and political issues unmediated by a, an establishment might be viewed with suspicion. So you spend a good deal of space on one figure in particular, Father Charles Coughlin, the anti-Semitic Catholic priest who became a fierce critic of FDRs. Could you talk a little bit about Coughlin's radio career and the problems that posed for both government and broadcasters who are trying to figure out how to deal with all the controversies that he was generating and how to get him off the air, basically. Yeah. Every time there's a new communications technology, it is seized upon as for ways that might improve journalism, make journalism more responsive, make journalism faster, make it more intimate. It also offers opportunities to people who want to exploit the new technology for malign purposes. And every time these new technologies come, they almost immediately arouse questions of what are we going to do with these and how do we control their use and can we regulate their use? This is a question that's got a lot of echoes today with the rise of AI. But with radio, the, the challenges were complicated because there was an, a general understanding that the federal government had the right to regulate the public airwaves because they belonged to the public. But that came up against questions of First Amendment freedoms of expression. So how did you, how could you reconcile these two? And Father Coughlin epitomized that debate. He came on, he's using the radio, as many of the fascists of the time did, to, to get a, an enormous audience. He had started out as a very minor parish priest, and he wanted to grow his, his congregation because it was not very big. So he started doing, using radio for Sunday sermons. He became more absorbed in politics. He began as a great supporter of Roosevelt, but turned against him because he felt Roosevelt was too elitist and didn't approve of his economic policies. And he began to let to give freer reign to the anti-Semitism that had probably always been there. But the question is, now what do you do with him? He's spewing what many people would call hate speech. Is hate speech protected? Does the federal government have the right to shut him down? What are the precedents here? There really isn't a lot of precedent because radio is still pretty new. What are we going to do with him? The Catholic Church, to some extent, was horrified by him, although he had many supporters in the Catholic Church as well. 
other radio broadcasters were horrified by him because they thought he, he would undermine the goodwill there. So they finally figured out, working together, industry leaders, the church, and the government figured out a way to maneuver him off the air without actually making it a First Amendment issue. They developed a policy that said that the, the National Association of Broadcasters, the industry leaders, developed a policy that said that radio stations should present controversial issues, but that they should not, that, that time on the radio should be given to them free. And Coughlin never wanted to take free time because he thought that would put him under the thumb of the industry. So he backed out holding true to his principles and everybody was able to say, breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, okay, we got rid of that. But it, it raised all sorts of complicated issues that are still still in the air. Yeah. So you think that history has any lessons for how to deal with those types of problems, which we're obviously facing on social media in particular these days? Yeah. Well, the questions remain about whether you can regulate them. And the decisions in the Internet that came out of the Telecom Act in the 1990s are now being seen as no longer appropriate for the all-consuming world of social media, that platforms should have no responsibility, no obligations, that they cannot be sued for what people post on them. Maybe made sense when the internet was still new, but many people are beginning to think that is not appropriate for the way that they operate now. And AI, artificial intelligence, is raising the same kinds of questions. How could you possibly regulate it? But even some of the people most involved in advancing the industry and creating it, they're saying, we got to do something. This is really scary. So it's a pattern that we've seen. But each time the stakes get a little higher because the technology each time is a little high, is a little more powerful and a little maybe more scary. We'll have more of Alex's conversation with Andy Tucker in a moment. Claudia Avila Cosnahan, Director of Mission and Partnerships at Commonweal. One thing I love about Commonweal is our spirit of curiosity. It shapes everything we do, from religion to politics to culture and the arts. Consider becoming a Commonweal associate today. Just visit commonwealmagazine.org forward slash donate. Your gift helps support everything we do, including this podcast. Now let's get back to the conversation. We've talked a little bit about how professionalism and journalism is challenged by this kind of pull towards sensationalism with tabloids and the yellow press, by political partisanship. But in times of crisis or times of war, there also becomes these other pressures, patriotism or groupthink. The fear of being seen as a traitor or disloyal can influence journalists' judgments, but what else can turn the press into the word that people often use as stenographers for power, especially at times of crisis? Yeah, or lapdogs. Yeah. yeah. It, that's the biggest challenge for any journalist, and journalists often don't quite live up to it or don't live up to it in the way that one would hope. It is a really difficult thing to stand up and say, wait a minute, this rush to war is really dangerous. We don't want to do this. As you just said, it, the, the journalist is vulnerable to being called a traitor, to being called stupid and not understanding what's going on. 
there has been a lot of pushback after the coverage of the Iraq war, the Iraq invasion in 2003. The New York Times and the Washington Post in particular, both of them had big stories saying, we're sorry, we got it wrong. We weren't skeptical enough. We didn't report it out. We used sources who we shouldn't have trusted. And that's something that they will then go ahead and acknowledge and apologize, but it didn't help when it should have. It didn't help refocus their reporting at a time when it might have made more of a difference. Journalism can be a really important, great, idealistic, noble profession, but if you do it right, no one will love you. If you do it right, maybe your mother will love you, and that's about (laughs) it. And that's a really hard thing for people to grasp, but increasingly important because you are often writing a story and you don't know how it's going to end. And so it, it, you're out on a limb and you really want to be a responsible journalist and do the best work you can. But if you're telling a story that people will refuse to hear and you go under because no one is reading your newspaper anymore, that doesn't help anyone either. It's a really fine line and those, that's one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. So you talked before about this distinction you make in the book between fake news and fake journalism. Basically, fake news is stories that are completely made up, whereas fake journalism appropriates the the professionalism of real journalism, but gives us information that's not accurate. You seem to think that fake journalism is the bigger problem today than just fake news. Can you explain a little bit why you think that? Yeah. Fake news can be, as we've said, it can be fun. It can be something that is entertaining. It doesn't necessarily something people take seriously. You get it from social media. You get it out there. It's just stuff that isn't true. Fake journalism is a much more, I think, insidious approach. And it was not possible until there was such a thing as real journalism, real professional journalism that was started in fits and starts at the beginning of the 20th century. When news organizations, I'm putting quotes or air quotes around news, when they use the language and the conventions and the ethics and they present themselves as objective journalists doing rigorous reporting and verified and with factual verification, when they use that language and that presentation in order to make um, thinly veiled cases of advocacy or propaganda or misinformation or lies, that undermines faith in real journalism, that knocks real journalism on its head, that misleads and deceives people, readers, it, and it's exactly what journalism should not do. But you see a lot of it now, uh, much more of it now. Something like, I would say Fox News is a fake journalism organization because it has always called itself fair and balanced. It's always said, we report, you decide, but it uses straightforward approaches. It claims to be objective. It uses words like that and uses those to present false information. So at the same time as outlets like Fox News are claiming the mantle of professional journalism, of objectivity, mainstream journalists are increasingly themselves beginning to question those ideals, especially in the wake of protests against police violence. Some reporters have raised questions about the value of objectivity. Why do you think it's a mistake to let go of this ideal for mainstream 
journalists and how do you think we should think about objectivity in the wake of some of these challenges? That's the great question for now. There are two issues at stake here that often get conflated into one when this when people argue about objectivity. And you're absolutely right. There is a real concern which has become very clear in the wake of the racial justice protest in particular. There's a real understanding that objectivity should not be seen as a sort of the default general white male view of the standard legacy newsroom, that objectivity can be a cover for the status quo, for not challenging. All of those, I think, we're really beginning to understand more clearly. But by my fear is that by dismissing the goals of objectivity in order to respond to the rightful concern about diversity and points of view in the newsroom, if you give up what seems like commitment to rigorous verification, straightforward balance, I think you you cede the field to the fake journalists like Fox News. Objectivity has been badly misunderstood. It, when it was proposed as a journalistic value in the 1920s, notably by Walter Lippmann, the idea was not that the journalist was going to pretend not to have any ideas one way or the other. The journalist was not going to, be able to pretend I have no point of view. The point was to learn how to address an issue rigorously, factually, to recognize your own perspective, to work to report against that perspective, to purposefully seek out a point of view that that challenge what you're trying to argue, that take that applies scientific rigor. And yes, we all make mistakes. We all have perspectives and points of view we don't really understand. But the training of a journalist should be to question that, to say that's not possible because a newsroom is needs to in, in, improve its understanding of a larger culture. I said that's making two different arguments. And to give up the idea that you can come to a sense of true information through rigorous reporting, that's dangerous. That means that the fake journalists like Fox News that say we are doing fair and balanced reporting are going to own the field. They're going to, they're going to sound more authoritative. They're going to sound more believable because they're saying, yes, this is what's true, when it isn't. Whereas legacy journalists are saying, well, we think this is true, but let me tell you, I'm not sure because I have this point of view. It, it, there's nowhere to stand that you can make a real informed argument between those two different wings. Towards the end of the book, you write a, a little bit about John Stewart and, and the very different resonance that the phrase fake news had in those years in the aughts. You point out that the Daily Show was actually admired and even envied during that period by real professional journalists who thought that the format, the comedy format, allowed Stewart to tell the truth, quote unquote, in a way that professional norms and structures prevented them from doing. And since then, I think Stewart's brand of journalism has crossed over from places like Comedy Central, where his show was aired, toward real news. I wonder what you think of that legacy of John Stewart's show and the influence and the kind of point of view journalism that has brought into the world. You could sum that up under the rubric of branding. Yeah. There is real pressure on many journalists nowadays to make themselves a brand. 
there is so much competition out there. There are so many different alternatives. There are so many different social media platforms and podcasts and everything else where people can, can go and get their information that many journalists feel compelled to present themselves as a broad personality in order to brand themselves, in order to, to earn their audience. And sometimes that works really well. Sometimes it's terrific. Sometimes I love that kind of work. Mm -hmm. But if that's the only kind of work there is, then we start to run into trouble too. I think we want to be able to, or I want as a news consumer, as not somebody who, who creates news, but as a news consumer, I want to be able to have a sense of what the background is of the news organization, personality, whatever, what that is, where the person came from, what sort of verification and vetting does this journalist do? Yeah. If the person strikes me as performing journalism rather than presenting vetted information, I get a little wary. I get a little wary, depending on what I'm talking about. If, I'm re if I want to read a movie review, I love attitude. I love, that's perfectly fine. If I'm wanting to read about the war in Ukraine, I'm not interested in a personality or a brand. I want to feel sure that I'm understanding what's going on in a part of the world that I can't visit myself. Right. So I, I, I guess I want, I want a variety of sources. The message I get from the book, at least, is that a recommitment to professional values is, is probably the most promising way forward for journalism in some way or another. And I think that's right. But I also think that professionalization, at least the way that it's currently practiced, can bring along some negatives. So in particular, journalists at top-tier publications tend to come from well-off families. They tend to come from urban environments. They tend to all attend more or less the same types of universities, often the most elite universities. Obviously, Columbia's journalism school would be a case in point. And as a result, they tend to see the world in similar ways. So does that seem like a problem to you? And how can that be addressed? No, I think that you've identified a real problem there. And the demographics of mainstream journalists, of influential journalists has always been a very small, has always been very small and similar. But one of the uh, solutions is, is on the journalistic organizations themselves, on the news yeah. organizations themselves, they've got to do better in hiring reporters who do represent broad different viewpoints. The New York Times needs to have conservative journalists. I would like to see Fox News have some more liberal journalists. There, there have been a few. There have been a few very brave souls. So that's a large part of it. But I'm also really hopeful. I've been at the Columbia Journalism School now for more than 20 years. And when I first began the classes, yeah, they tended to be, as you said, they tended to be, many of them were Ivy League educated, many of them were urban, many of them were white and male. I looked at the incoming class, the statistics for the incoming class, and something like 40%, I think, are international students, some of whom want to go back to their home countries and others of whom want to work here. And of the U.S. citizens who chose to identify, not all of them did, Some, I think it's nearly half were people of color. There are also many more women than there used to be. There are people who are coming from small towns. So I don't know whether that shows that Columbia is vigorously recruiting or that people are a more diverse range of people are willing to think of themselves as 
somebody who could benefit from and be beneficial to the Columbia Journalism School. Mm -hmm. People who see a place for themselves at Columbia Journalism School. I find it really hopeful that the class is so varied and much more than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. Andy Tucker's book is Not Exactly Lying, Fake News and Fake Journalism in American History, and it's available from Columbia University Press. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>